Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Mike Kelvington. Currently, Mike is a professor of military science at The Ohio State University, where he's also part of the university's ROTC program. Mike is an experienced infantry officer and military professional armed with over a dozen combat deployments and a master's of public affairs focused on international relations from Princeton University. Before we dive into today's heartfelt conversation, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to Mike and his family for their service and sacrifice to this country. Also, the views expressed within this podcast are Mike's alone and do not reflect the official opinions or positions of the United States Army or the Department of Defense. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about For Your Listening Pleasure's first collaboration. One of the podcast goals is to raise awareness about various nonprofits and organizations doing good in the world. I always ask each podcast guest if they are part of a particular nonprofit or if there's a specific organization that they support. I have a running list and I hope that one day I will be able to raise awareness and give to each of them. I am excited to announce my first collaboration with the Street artist wordsmith together we designed a sweatshirt that you're now able to purchase and all proceeds will be going to pause chicago and pets for vets make sure to listen to each of their mini episodes to learn more about what each organization does and where the funds will go I'm also happy to inform listeners that under the podcast umbrella, I have started my own charitable organization called For Your Charitable Pleasure to ensure that all funds now and in the future go towards organizations making a difference in the world. I'm so excited about this collaboration that I personally will be donating $2 for every Instagram repost with the hope of raising awareness around these two outstanding organizations. All you need to do is follow the podcast on Instagram, tag For Your Listening Pleasure, and include the link to purchase in the repost. Additional information, including social media usernames and purchase links, can be found in this episode's show notes. One last thing, Wordsmith, also known as Brody, I thank you for your partnership on this. You were gracious enough to respond to my email and agree to come on the podcast. Thank you for dedicating your time and talent to this collaboration, and thank you for helping support two incredibly impactful organizations. And to my loyal listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast week after week, and I I hope you enjoy this episode. So Mike, thank you so much for joining me um, today. And let's start kind of with our usual question. Um, talk to us about what was life like for you growing up? Yeah, so grew up in Akron, Ohio. Uh, some would say the, you know, the Rust Belt. Uh, my my dad was a third generation auto mechanic. And so we uh we, we did not live a poor life, but, you know, we also didn't live a, a um, luxurious life either. Um, my dad worked really hard when, when we were kids and so did my mom. Um, my, uh, my uh, parents, you know, I had two brothers uh, and so I was the middle one, uh, the, the instigator of the family. Um, so a, a lot of our, uh, family activities revolved around sports and usually vacations were camping and, uh, fishing and boating. Um, and, uh, my dad 
uh, had a, you know, small fishing boat that we used to do things like tubing and, and, uh, kneeboarding and that kind of stuff. Um, I think one kind of odd, but, you know, kind of interesting story about my childhood, I guess, is, uh, I, I had this weird kind of string of oddities that happened to me when I was young. Uh, I had, uh, I had my foot accidentally run over by a car. I had uh, a couple of bad go-kart accidents. Um, I got uh, the measles even after getting the MMR shot. So I was uh, vaccinated, um, but still got uh, the measles. Uh, when, I, when I was about six, I, I also contracted a really bad case of spinal meningitis. And that I think has kind of anchored a lot of things later on in life. Um, we talked about uh, some other things that you and I discussed. And I, my dad found me in bed. My eyes were rolling in the back of my head. I was having a seizure from really the, the temp that I, I had. Um, they rushed me to the hospital. I had 107 degree temperature and they, they told my parents I wasn't going to make it through the night. And I did. Um, one, of, one of my earliest childhood memories is being strapped face down to um, a, a spine board being administered a spinal tap when I was a kid as part of that experience, but um, made it through the night. Uh, I didn't talk for five days. And then um, after, after I got discharged from the hospital, uh, I, I stuttered for about six months and the docs told my parents that because of the temperature and everything that went on, uh, I, I wasn't going to be more than a, a C student. And that, that happened you know, pretty early on um, in kind of my K through 12 uh, educational development. And uh, my mom, who's been a, a, a a foundational person, an instrumental person in my life, uh, really instilled in me this belief that uh, God kept me around for a reason. And so, um, you know, I'm sure we can talk about other things later on about faith and uh, my career in the army, but that's, you know, something that I carried out of my childhood um, that I, I think has been pretty impactful in my life. Well, what's interesting about that story is one i'm so happy that that had to be scary for your parents to go through that that's the i think any parent's worst fear but to get into west point where you attended school and to have the career in the military that you had you couldn't have just been a c student like you would have never made it that far or you know continuing even now as a professor but do you think that that experience really challenged you to kind of, I'm the kind of person when someone tells me I can't do something, I'm like, just watch me. Like I'm going to do this. Do you feel like that kind of defined your work ethic when all these people said you're going to have limitations, but you just kind of shattered those? Yeah, I think um, my, my, my dad, and my grandfather definitely modeled a work ethic that I think was, was something that I could latch onto. Um, but, but certainly I think that being told that was, was something that I think was, uh, you know, something that specifically my mom encouraged me to do well in school. So I think kind of two things, 
Um, I had an older brother that I always tried to keep up with. And so he, you know, he did really well in school, um, both um, academically and athletically. So I had, I had someone to try to keep up with. And, you know, so the three brothers, the house gets pretty competitive. Um, But um, yeah, absolutely. I think that was a a key part of, um, you know, not just, not just striving to get good grades, but, um, you know, I I ended up graduating valedictorian in my high school class. And like you said, got accepted to West Point. So um, yeah, absolutely. A a key part of my foundation. And, you know, it's kind of like, you can never, prove the counter narrative, but if that hadn't happened to me, I, I, you know, I don't know uh, what, what would have happened. Um, But certainly it's something that I've used as kind of additional fuel. Like you said, when people say you can't do something, that's, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those hold my, hold my beer, watch this. Yeah. So So you graduated Val Victorian world's your oyster. You can kind of do whatever you want. And you ended up choosing to go to West Point did you know you always wanted to go into the military is that something that is instilled in your family or is that like a calling you had yeah I I always felt like serving the military was something I wanted to do um, I I had a great-grandfather that you know fought in World War One. I. I had uh, another that that was in World War II um, I had you know, numerous family members um, my, my father didn't serve both my grandfathers served, um, both in the fifties, not, uh, during Korean war or in the Korean war. Um, but I just, it, it just kind of was one of those things I always felt like I wanted to do. Um, I, I think one with, with the point of your podcast that I'd, I'd like to point out in this discussion is, um, one of the things, and I, I, I'm, I'm much more attuned to it now than I was when I was younger. Um, but the, the narrative was constantly, well, you can't join the military. You're too smart. You need to go to college. And, um, you know, I, 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 I like pointing this out because I think it really does kind of uh, eliminate the notion in the um you know, kind of Vietnam era of this whole go to war, go to jail, uh, kind of um, really a stereotype uh, and, and a negative one, really, because uh, people will say, well, he went to the army, he was too, too, too stupid to go to college kind of thing. There's definitely then, a stigma around going to the military. And I feel like it's portrayed in media and movies like, oh, I'm not smart enough to co- go to college. I'm just going to go sign up to go to the military. But right. that is not the case. So, yeah, explain more about that, because that's definitely something. And one point about this podcast is I really I am not from a military background. Um, sure. I don't know anyone close that went to the United into the military here. So for me, it's definitely a learning opportunity to talk to you and learn more about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the. That was probably, um, you know, the the whole go to war or go to jail kind of thing. Like, hey, you can do this, or the judge says you can do that. Um, you know, perhaps in the the, the mid seventies when the army was going through an identity crisis in a lot of ways. Um, but the nowadays, it's absolutely not the fact. 
and um, you know, I think there's there's a, a a decent amount of data out there that would actually show you that the the average IQ for someone serving in the military is actually higher than uh, the civilian population, specifically in high performing units uh, in the special operations community, um, where where I came from. Um, most recently, before I moved to Ohio State, I, I spent most of my career uh, with the 75th Ranger Regiment, and you, there's a lot of wicked smart people uh, in in units like that. Not just not just like you know can run through a brick wall strong, um, but but the you know the the required um, IQ that it takes to to be on a high performing team like that. There's a lot of smart people there. And uh, so I, I, my, my junior year of high school, I, I got a pamphlet in the mail and it was about West Point. And um, I had really no uh, exposure, um, you know, un unlike my wife who had both parents go to the military academy, uh, that, that's not something that I was really familiar with, but the light bulb turned on and it kind of, you know, said, aha, this is it. I can, I can still serve. I can get a college degree um, and I can be a leader. Um, and, and that's something that I enjoyed going through high school, playing on sports teams and being involved in extracurricular activities, that kind of thing, that uh, that that team sport mentality uh, was something I really latched on to. So uh, that that's really what did it for me. And I, I kind of put all my eggs in one basket when it came to, you know, once once I got that, that was that was what I wanted to do. So this might sound naive, but so like any other college, you pick a major, you go to West Point. Do you pick which division of military you want to go into or how does that process work? Because you did a lot with Ranger School and Airborne School, which I'm going to want to get into because sure. I really don't know much about it. But how did you end up choosing which branch you really want to go to or which specialty? if that's the right way to phrase it. Yeah. So the, the, there's different service academies for different branches uh, and, and it's expanded a little bit uh, recently with, with things like the space force. So West point is uh, for the army. It's the military Academy. Um, the Navy has the Naval Academy down at Annapolis, Maryland. Um, there's an air force Academy now the Navy also covers the Marine Corps and the Air Force now uh, most recently also covers Space Force. Um, there's also a Merchant Marine Academy and a, and a Coast Guard Academy as well. Uh, so when, when you kind of pick an academy, there are very small percentages of people who cross branch at the end of the four-year experience, but it's, it's, it's pretty small, uh, probably in the teens. Uh, so for the most part, the academy that you go to ends up being the branch of the military service that you go into. And then when it comes to specialties, that is uh, ma the majority of that is based on your class rank. Um, and there are, you know, kind of a number of slots for each branch within the army. Um, and I, I picked infantry. That was the branch that I wanted to go into. Um, so um, that's largely based on your order of merit within your class, based on slots available, where you rack and stack and kind of how you get to pick and choose. But um, that's uh, that's kind of the, the the long and short of it. I'm, I'm in the I'm in an ROTC program now, 
which is a um, a a similar but different commissioning source uh, where uh, college students can go through a program uh, where they receive military training, um, similar but different to the military training that, that the cadets up at West Point get. And they also, when they graduate from college, uh, also commission into the United States Army, similar to the service academy. And then uh, there's a third way of doing that, which is called officer candidate school. And it's usually uh, those who already have degrees that can kind of go to a startup school to learn life in the military. Um, and then they commission and go into the, the basic officer leader course that any of the commissioning sources would go into. So it's kind of a mixed bag um, of different, different paths to get to the same end state of becoming a lieutenant in the Army. Um, or really a, an officer in the Army when it comes to all the service academies as well. So I know you met your wife at West Point because she is also a graduate and hopefully a future podcast guest because this is a female attending West Point. I would love to hear her perspective. Yeah. But so you guys both graduate and then you go to Alaska, I believe, right? After right. school. Does she yeah. also come? Like, is there a way that they, the military helps with that? Or were you guys separated? You know, how did, did you choose to go to Alaska? I don't know if that would be on top of my list of places. Like, cause I know the military obviously has forts all over, but is that like a special training program that you attended? Yeah. Um, couple pieces there. So the first one, uh, I, I did pick Alaska. Um, there were uh, really, there was one place, Italy, that I, I couldn't go to. And again, it was kind of like based on uh, class rank, but um, there was, there was an, a, a fairly new airborne brigade that was being stood up there, uh, led by an incredible uh, officer that I knew at West Point, uh, who then was Colonel Garrett. He's, a, he's now a four-star general. Um, that, that, uh, was taking a, uh, standing up the brigade. And I also knew that they were on what we call the patch chart, which meant the unit was slated to deploy. And in 2005, when I was graduating, um, I wanted to go to a unit that I knew was de deploying to, you know, a place like Iraq or, or Afghanistan. Um, and so that definitely checked all the boxes. Plus it, it was a pretty, uh, neat place to go. Um, you know, as my first duty station, uh, specifically because my wife was a year behind me. And so she spent an extra year uh, at West Point, and then uh, she wanted to go aviation. And there's only one place that aviators can go after they graduate from college or uh, the military academy, which is flight school. And that was down at Fort Rucker, Alabama, which is, which is not a place where an infantry officer gets stationed. So um, that, that was a conscious decision. Um, also knowing that I wasn't going to really be there. You know, I was, I was technically stationed in Alaska for 25 months. But when you strip away um, a 14-month deployment to Iraq, uh, a couple training exercises uh, in and outside of uh, the state uh, to include down in Louisiana for about five weeks and some block leave periods where I traveled back to the continental U.S. I, I really only spent like five and a half, six months in, in the state of Alaska, like actually living in the apartment that I was in. Um, and uh, 
so Meg did manage to come up a couple times, one of which was uh, when we actually got engaged. Um, after she graduated, she came up and spent some time with me. And, um, and I'm sorry, you, you asked me another part of that question. Well, no. So I guess the question was, is how, so what does training look like for that? Because you talked about, I know you want to go um, and be deployed and we'll get into that because you served a lot. Um, yeah. and went overseas quite a bit, but what is that like first stage of schooling look like training? What does that consist of? Yeah. So uh, it varies again by service and then by branch. Uh, so for, for my frame of reference as an infantry officer, you, you commissioned from your, your commissioning source. I, I left West Point, uh, took, uh, took some time off, uh, hung out with my family in Ohio and then went down to, uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, every officer goes what's called uh, now the basic officer leader course or Bullock. And that is essentially your training as a new officer within that branch to learn how to do your job. Um, part of that pipeline, typically for an infantry officer, especially going to an airborne unit, is having the opportunity to attend Ranger School and then going to airborne school. Um, if you haven't been yet, some cadets have the opportunity to go to jump school, uh, while they're cadets. I, I went to a different school when I was up at West Point, um, and, uh, called air assault school, but, um, the, that, that's kind of the traditional pipeline. And then when you finish those, uh, those different individual training progressions, then you move off to your first unit. And that's when I moved up to Alaska. So you mentioned in 2005, you got deployed. Um, what was that first deployment like? What were you feeling? And then when you landed, what was your first like impression? And where, if you can tell us, where was the first deployment? Sure. Um, so with all of the time in training, um, I got to Alaska. It was the spring of 2006. Uh, I had the opportunity to be with my unit for about six months, which was great. And then I, I, we, we deployed early, early October, uh, spent about three weeks in Kuwait, and then uh, spent the rest of my time in Iraq. Um, we were in a place called Iskandaria, which was south of Baghdad, uh, kind of between Baghdad and Karbala, um, in the, uh, what they called like the, the, the Sunni Triangle, um, and uh, I, I guess first impressions, you know, you, uh, over there when you get off, like probably most people's first impressions was how hot it was. Um, but, uh, you know, aside, aside from just the environmentals, I think just realizing how much I had to learn, um, I, I felt pretty good, not just the people that I was with going overseas, but also the training progression that we had gone through to get to that point. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you, you know, and you learn, but, um, there's just some things you kind of have to do live to really, um, understand it and grasp it. And, you know, understanding the human dynamics, I think was a really big aspect of that. I just don't know if there's any training that can really prepare you for going into a war zone and then being in a war and that experience. Um, overall, 
I believe you did 14 deployments mm -hmm. between Iraq and Afghanistan. So first, let me just say thank you. That is a huge commitment. And I know that that really also was on your family and your wife supporting you and your children and everyone. So thank you. Sure. But when you were over there, did you ever question at some point, because you went over there quite a bit, and I have a feeling each time you went there, maybe your feelings changed a little bit. Was there ever a point where you kind of questioned, like, what's the point? Or it's kind of, I guess when I'm thinking about it, there's sometimes a project you take on and you think it's going to be a small project and you're going to get it done timely. And then like the water main breaks and then this happens and then that happens. And then finally you just look and like, is this worth it? Sure. The amount of money and effort you're putting into this like project. Did you ever feel like that when you were over there? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's been, there's been some folks that have kind of gotten into some hot water when it comes to uh, sharing, uh, you know, feelings specifically in the wake of uh, what's recently happened in Afghanistan. Um, so kind of, you know, setting politics and all that aside, um, I would just have to say that um, when you, when you, when you see the things that I've seen and you've, you've read the intelligence and you, uh, you, you know what the enemy's up to, um, my, my career really started at West Point, uh, my second week of my first academic year when I was a freshman or we call them plebes at West Point, uh, 9-11 happened. And oh, I was, wow. I was, you know, 40 miles up the Hudson river from Manhattan there at West Point, New York. Um, so our, our community was deeply impacted, um, you know, military, uh, local area, uh, there, you know, someone who knew someone, uh, that was either, um, at ground zero or helping at ground zero or deploying as a result of what happened at ground zero. Um, you know, my wife's family is a, is a really good example. Um, you know, my, my wife's father was in the Pentagon when the, the plane, uh, hit, hit the building. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to start a career like that and um, look backwards. I think that's certainly something that we've had to uh, better explain, especially to those that are now entering the service that are probably asking questions, you know, prior to August of 2021, like, why are we still in Afghanistan after 20 years? Um because we truly do have, I, I have cadets in my program right now that uh, were, were physically not alive when, when 9-11 happened, right? And so it's, um, it, it has turned into that kind of Pearl Harbor moment where you ask people, hey, where were you on 9-11? Um, and either people can tell you or they're, you know, we're at the point now where um, that has become a history lesson for new basic trainees entering the service. And so there's incredible resources at places like Fort Benning, like the National Infantry Museum, where they take basic trainees and they have those conversations to make sure that they understand. But 
it's just like me trying to explain to my kids what it's like driving through the streets of Kabul and seeing kids without diapers on walking through, you know, raw sewage on the side of the street. Um, I can tell them stories all day long, but until you see it, you, you smell it, uh, it, it, it means something completely different um, because I've internalized it in a different way that those that weren't alive or didn't experience it the same way that I did, which, um, you know, I, my 9-11 story, because everyone has one that was alive then, um, it's, it's, the, it's the New York City version. Uh, my wife's version of 9-11 is much more focused on D.C. because of where her father, uh, where her father was. Um, so, you know, going back to your original question, um, I, I've always felt like I've believed in the mission and was doing what I was asked to do. And I was with people who were doing that mission very well. And um, that and the focus on doing the best I could to take care of the people I was responsible for also becomes your mission, um, you know, kind of regardless of what the overall uh, mission is. Um, sometimes, you know, that can uh, cause a dilemma. Um, in a war zone when you're asking people to do things that can put them at risk. But um, ultimately, I, 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 don't, I don't really think um, even in some of the tougher moments overseas that I ever really truly asked myself that question. Um, I, I do think that there are a lot more people in our community since August that have been asking those harder questions a lot more. And I think that um, that is uh, probably one of my biggest, you know, concerns right now with our community is how we as a community, the veteran community responds to what's occurred in Afghanistan and the resources that are available for people uh, that might be struggling with those questions. Well, I, I can't even fathom what it was like to be at West Point while 9-11 was happening, as well as what your wife was feeling at the time with her father. I was in seventh grade. Um, we were not told about what was going on. I just remember that day we were locked in school and told to go straight home. And when I got home, well, actually my mom picked me up, which I thought was weird. And then when I got home and the TV was on and I saw the planes hitting the towers. So I didn't know I was younger, but I still remember witnessing it. Obviously, you're in a school, you're joining the armed forces, and this happens. I would, if it was me, yes, we'll talk about what happened in August in 2021, but I obviously understand that you were going there, you had a mission, you knew what was happening, people around you either had loved ones in the military or, like you said, at Ground Zero or at the Pentagon. So I think that it's almost a ripple effect. It, it affected so much closer. And mm -hmm. as people are younger, or as you said, aren't, weren't even born when it happened, now joining the military, it's hard for them to understand that impact. I was so young, but I still remember that like fear and sure. that shock that happened. Um, August 15th of 2021. And mm -hmm. you see that the Taliban take over the city of Kabul. And it's like 20 years of work, kind of 
in um, 72 hours, just yeah. done. Um, what were your feelings? Um, yeah, I, you know, the, the feelings, uh, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of happiness there. Um, mo- mostly, um, you know, sadness, um, and, and really concern. Uh, and you saw this a lot with kind of the aftermath of what folks have been trying to do, um, both in the moment and afterwards, um, there were a lot of people reaching out for help. Um, and, uh, you know, probably one of the biggest things that I struggled with during that time period was, uh, transitioning from a unit that I'd been in for a while, uh, coming to a new job. Um, and, and all of this kind of happening in the, in, in the wake of all that. Um, so I felt a little disconnected from, uh, what, what the ground truth potentially was. Um, but as I, as I was getting plugged in with some folks that were trying to help with some of the rescue efforts, um, there was just good people trying to do good things. And, um, you know, we, we had mentioned the linguist that came to the United States, um, a little over five years ago. So uh, why don't you explain that story? Because I don't think we talked about it while we were recording. So, um, you, have always been a helper it seems like and you've stood up to help others get better opportunities and your linguist was one of them and you have continued that work so would you mind the listeners kind of giving them background and what that's about sure so in 2012 it was uh, I think my fifth deployment I was a, a company commander uh, serving with the 82nd. I was in Southern Afghanistan in a province called Kandahar. And I, I worked with a linguist that I, I really um, admired uh, for his service and the services that he provided us. Um, they, they call them LCAs. So a lot of people call them, you know, interpreters or TERPs, um, linguists. Uh, linguists and cultural advisors was what their kind of uh, contracted name was. We called him Dave. Uh, his name's Hamayun, but uh, Dave was uh, just a guy that not only could help me translate to uh, talk to the local people, but help me understand the human dynamics of the area. He had been there for a couple years, rotating through different units, different. Um, uh, actually Canadian first, then United States units that had served in the area. He had been there so long. And over the seven months that we worked together, towards the end, he asked if I would help him out with uh, gaining a, um, a, a special immigration visa. So I wrote a sponsor letter for him. And that was uh, J- July or August of 2012. Um, you know, fast forward to 2015, uh, I'm in, I'm in grad school. Um, and he is still stuck in Afghanistan waiting for a special immigration visa to get approved. And so I I used that time in grad school to kind of launch uh, a, a campaign to ask 
family members, friends, uh, anybody that that I could I could speak with to um, contact their congressman. Um, kind of very similar to what people were being encouraged to do, you know, in August of last year, um, but obviously not the 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 mass, um, you know, kind of all at the same time. And uh, so I, I managed to get, I think it was, um, I think fifty-two different. I have, I have the numbers. It's is that 50, what it is? Yeah, it's fifty-three congressmen and um, senators from over seventeen states. Yeah. As well as classmates and professors to reach out to different Washington officials, which is amazing. Yeah. So um, I, had, I had a buddy that. Uh, you know, and, and if we get the time to talk about hobbies and everything else, I really started writing uh, in grad school. It was uh, really my first opportunity to kind of take a pause and, and process a lot of the stuff that I'd experienced so far in my in my army career. And um, that was one of the things that I, I wanted to do. And, and I, I found a buddy that um, has this uh, online uh, uh, blog site um, that uh, it really helps uh, military and veterans uh, have a voice uh, called the Havoc Journal. And uh, so I became good friends with Charlie and he's, he's allowed me over the years to kind of use, um, use that site as a way to kind of work on some things that I think are important. And that was one of them. Um, so we, we, uh, I wrote an article. Um, there's a, a, a couple that we got put out, um, but um, you know, kind of, it got to the point where when I would call the state department for an update, um, I, I would say the number and they would pull his name up and they'd be like, Oh yeah, this guy again, you know, like they, you know, people were tracking him both at the embassy in Kabul and at the state department. Um, you know, when, when you called them stateside to, to check in on this guy, because there were so many people that were looking into his case. Um, so we, we launched that in 15, finally in 16, uh, after the rest of the hoops that he has to jump through with medical screening and background checks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he came to the United States in November of 2016. So it was almost four and a half years after he had applied. He finally came to the States with his wife and two kids. They have, they have a third child now. Um, and he's, uh, he, he settled in, in Akron. So um, he, he lives in an apartment complex across the street from where my parents uh, auto repair shop used to be. Um, so it was, it was funny for a, a number of deployments after that, I ended up um, back in Afghanistan and I, I joked with him that uh, I was now in his hometown and he was living in my hometown. Um, but uh, he's doing well and uh, it should be really any day now. I'm kind of waiting on the word that, um, he and his wife have taken the citizenship test. And uh, so they're, they're kind of waiting on, I think, a final interview. And then they should be actually cleared to be sworn in as American citizens. Um, so pretty excited about that. But um, they've been here over five years now. Um, and so, you know, going back to the, the August question, um, a lot of concern for people that I knew um, you know, he was extremely concerned for his family. Um, and there was a number of people that I've worked with over the years that were reaching out for help. Um, some of which I'm, I'm still in touch with and are, 
uh, trying to find their way either to the States or to their families that are elsewhere in the world right now, um, because some of them stayed to fight, um, got their families out, others got out, but didn't get their families out. Uh, and so it's been, um, you know, I, I think, I think for some folks that are still intimately involved in trying to help, um, I, I don't even really know if there are some people, uh, because of how deep, uh, their involvement is in uh, trying to provide assistance in the aftermath of that, that there's some people who have really had the opportunity to process it all um, because they've been trying to just help other people um, in the wake of that. So, um, so for listeners, how can listeners help? Because it's still an ongoing issue. It's not going away. There's still either families who have come here that need support or, um, you know, you have more insight on how can people help and get involved? Sure. Uh, well, for my case specifically, uh, there's a guy named Matt Zeller who um, uh, co-founded a, a nonprofit that, that is still up and running um, to this day and is helping people. Uh, and it's called No One Left Behind. Um, and, and so uh, he actually co-founded it with his linguist to, uh, in, in an attack uh, by the Taliban, um, he, he had been, uh, um, wounded and, uh, actually his, his linguist saved his life. Um, and so, you know, they, they co-founded this, uh, nonprofit to advocate for, um, faster processes for special immigration visas, advocate for more special immigration visas for linguists and those that have supported the U.S. Um, and then uh, specifically also with resettlement. Um, so Matt and his nonprofit was a huge resource for me to understand not only what I needed to do to try to advocate to get Dave and his family here, but also what the right steps were once we got the good news that he was coming uh, to, to make sure that there was kind of like a checklist of things like, you know, helping him get, uh, you know, uh, just simple things like study for a driver's test and get an apartment, open a checking account, um, you know, th those kind of things, uh, find a job. Um, they, they helped me uh, actually procure a vehicle for him. So he had wheels to get his family around to doctor's appointments and school and drive to work and that kind of stuff. So um, that's, that's a way. Um, and I know that that, that non nonprofit specifically has been endorsed by people as, as big as um, General Petraeus. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's well known at this point and, and, um, it's, it's, it's helped a lot of people uh, in, that, in that space. For our listeners, I'll go ahead and post that on our Instagram so you can see and learn how to get more involved and help because, you know, oh, I would say the majority of us all come from some kind of immigrant families at some point. And mm -hmm. anytime you move to a new country, it's hard. You might not know the language. They're moving with children and moving with nothing. So they can definitely use help in any way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think they showed up with five suitcases. Um, and that was, you know, that was pretty much it. So, yeah. So what was it like kind of transitioning into more a, of a civilian life? Granted, you still are 
active, but you're not being deployed. What was that like for you? Well, I think the biggest thing is being able to appreciate things that I haven't been able to do. Um, So, you know, going back to last spring, even before we moved, um, I I had uh, a a spinal fusion done last January that kind of kept me from uh, really, really deploying mainly based on the extended period of time of rehab that I had. And so I I had a season where I was actually able to sign myself up to um, assist uh, with coaching my son's first season of T-ball. And so that's been kind of one of my passions and things that I've enjoyed is, is being around my kids and seeing them uh, grow up. I, I, I've, I've kind of explained, um, you know, with the 14 deployments, there's been times and periods in my career where um, collectively it's been about four and a half years of deployment time. Um, you know, not all of which uh, I was gone when I had kids, but it's, it's, it's about, a you know, almost a third of my marriage. Um, Megan and I have been married for 15 years. Um, but watching my kids grow up in snapshots on Facebook has been probably one of the most difficult things about my career so far. And so having the opportunity to just be around more uh, and, and appreciate that we're, we get um, three kids on three different basketball teams right now in our church leagues uh, I've been, uh, you know, uh, a couple, a couple Saturdays in January and February doing, you know, three games on a Saturday, you know, kind of running up and down the court and enjoying that. And um, watching my son uh, wrestle this year has been a passion that he's uh, grown to love and just being present for uh, the genesis of that, who knows where it's going to go. He's, he just turned six, but um just seeing the kids kind of pour themselves into something. My eight-year-old loves soccer and my 10-year-old decided uh, this spring she wants to try softball. So we're going to give that a shot. But uh, I, I think that's the biggest thing is, is just the, the routine um, and being able to anchor our family on predictability versus unpredictability of not knowing when uh, deployments are happening um, not knowing, uh, you know, on a recall status, if you're going to get a phone call, getting called into work, um, not knowing if that's a real phone call or a rehearsal or kind of, you know, things like that, um, that at least when I'm leaving now, uh, one, it's not for usually for an extended period of time. I, we do help with the, uh, summer training stuff with the cadets, um, but it's not for the whole summer. And, you know, I pretty much know what my schedule is going to be like already. So that's uh, something that we've been able to, you know, kind of manage as a family and kind of make some plans. So, um, you know, living in a world of unpredictability uh, over the course of, uh, I don't know how many years, uh, having having a long range calendar to actually say, okay, during these couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be able to plan, you know, some sort of family vacation um, has been, you know, extremely beneficial, I think, to us. So this is a personal question, so you don't have to answer it, but it's more of um, general. How can civilians or those who have families, 
how can we best support our um, military when they come home, whether they are transitioning into becoming veterans or they're home from deployment, you know, um, PTSD is a real thing, what you see, how do you kind of, how can we best support those who have served? You could probably do a whole podcast just on the the post-traumatic stress thing. Um, Cause that's, that's another one that I think uh, going back to like the, um, uh, I was too stupid to go to college. And, and so I, I joined the military kind of uh, stigma um, there was a recent survey and I, I can't remember the source, uh, but uh, actually my, my buddy's um, website, Havoc Journal posted something about it, um, of how concerning it was because uh, the general perception of, of uh, the veteran community for civilians is, um, you know, pretty much all veterans have post-traumatic stress disorder, um, that it's not curable. Uh, and that uh, it, it will result at some point in some some form of violence. Do you think that stemmed from like Vietnam, like that kind of stigma a little bit with like the veterans coming back just from the media and televised what was shown versus the realities? Yeah, I think I think that's that's part of it. You know, just Hollywood in general. It, maybe not necessarily just Vietnam itself, you know, there's, there's been, there's been different terms for, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, in the past. They used to call it soldier's heart or shell shock. Uh, So it's, it's kind of evolved over time. Um, I I do think that there's a lot of prevalence in, in T, you know, TV, specifically commercials, uh, tied to nonprofits and they do great stuff. Um, but having that constantly, uh, plan, I, I think the, the other thing I'd add is, um, there's really two stereotypes of a veteran that I think exists specifically in, in Hollywood and the media. And that is, um, you're either the broken Rambo, veteran vagabond walking around with your green duffel bag with no home and no no future um that is you know kind of constantly uh broken and drowning themselves in a bottle of booze and then there's this impregnable um invincible captain america that you know has an eight pack and um despite uh, whatever is thrown at them, they always come home with all four limbs and, you know, their, their, uh, their family is still intact and, um, no one is affected by, uh, that and they get the ticker tape parade and everybody's good. Right. And I, I think the truth is just like everyone else in our society. Um, most of us are somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, we all have families, we have struggles, um, very similar to 9-11, everyone has their own COVID story uh, of the, the struggles that they've had over the last two years and things that they've had to overcome uh, in addition to just life dealing with a pandemic. Um, so, you know, there, there's, it, it kind of goes back to, I think, your, your point of the podcast with empathy and understanding. Um, there, there, there are people in the the military and veteran community that um 
you know, thank you. Thank you for your services is always appreciated. Um, but there, there are some of us that don't expect uh, handouts and, and feel entitled to things um, because this is what we signed up for. Um, I, I think it's reasonable to expect for those that need care. Um, I, I know plenty of friends that have lost limbs and have uh, suffered traumatic brain injuries and have dealt with some significant struggles in their lives as a result of their service. And I think that we do absolutely owe it to them to make sure that they're taken care of. Um, but, you know, you can, you can, it's kind of like obesity. Um, there's a, there's a, a great, um, incredibly smart former army retired psychologist, uh, Dave Grossman, who talks about post-traumatic stress is you can be five pound overweight, or you can be 50 pounds overweight. Um, you know, you can, you can be five pounds, uh, worth of post-traumatic stress or 50 pounds. Um, and you can lose it over time with treatment. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that stigma is not helpful specifically when you have people, you know, coming out and talking about their mental health. Um, and I, I, you know, there's plenty of athletes. Um, Kevin Love is one. I was just going to say like Simone Biles in the yep. Olympics. Sure. Um, it's more and more, even I think LeBron James is, has talked about his mental health. Yeah. Um, I think that the conversation is started to help like develop more and, just like athletes, the military's looked at these, you know, that horrible stereotype of like you're Captain America, nothing's going to hurt you. What do you mean you have depression? What do you mean you have, you know, anxiety? But the more people talk about it and realize it's just part of being a human, these emotions, regardless if you're an NBA all-star or serving in the military or a teacher or a nurse, like, you know, it happens to all of us. And it's definitely something that's a trend throughout this podcast is so many guests have been like, yes, I suffered from depression or I had to deal with this. But the more we start to talk about it, the stigma hopefully Mm -hmm. goes away a little bit. Yeah. So one last question before we kind of dive into the last three, how's teaching been? What's it been like being a professor and um, you're at Ohio state. So go to all the games and be part of that community. But how has it been um, putting your academic hat back on? Granted, you have, I believe, three different master's degrees. So I feel like school's kind of always been a part of you, regardless of what those doctors and nurses said when you were younger. Right. Yeah. Um, It's been incredibly fun. Um, I think the biggest thing is where I am in my career um, I'm, I'm really in a transition phase where I'm passing the torch to the next generation. Uh, so our, our, our goal in, in the ROTC is to create leaders of character that are going to, um, you know, take our army into, uh, the next fight, the next gen, take care of the next generation of soldiers. And so I, I feel like, um, for, for me, it's not just about, you know, teaching academics and, and handing out grades, it's, it's really about uh, developing these, you know, young college students to become commissioned officers in the United States Army. And, and it's, 
it's, it's really a righteous mission. Um, I have an incredible team here at, here at Ohio state, the Ohio state. Um, I was always a Buckeyes fan when I was younger and, you know, it took me, um, you know, really a a kind of a a 20 year odyssey of leaving home, going to West point, uh, and then eventually winding up back in Ohio, uh, never in my wildest dreams that I think I'd end up here. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's been a blessing and, and, um, you know, when you get up and you, you see all these cadets awake and ready to get after uh, their workout at six o'clock in the morning, uh, it's uh, there's a lot of dedication there and it's uh, it's it's energizing. It's it's uh, it's hard keeping up with people half your age sometimes. Um, but uh, I mean, just to just to see the, the spark, um, because you can kind of see the spark that, you know, you, you know, people like me had when, when I was a cadet, just, just starting out and trying to figure out what, what my career was going to look like. Um, and, and you see that in them, the, the excitement, the questions they ask, it's, it's, um, it's awesome. Well, I have no doubt. I'm sure you're a phenomenal teacher and it's so nice to hear that you're helping the next generation kind of prepare to only protect our country, but also develop them into these amazing leaders that hopefully you never know if they're going to go and help change the world or help others in a time of need. So thank you so much. We always end with the final three questions. So the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? So I, I, I thought about this one a lot. Um, and, and recently I, I, I spoke to a small group of cadets called officer Christian fellowship. Um, and I, I, uh, there's a lot of people in, that, that, um, they, they like, uh, Philippians four thirteen as a scripture. Cause it talks about, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I, I've, I've found that incredibly helpful. Um, but, uh, the, the one that I wanted to share is actually a, a chapter before that in, in Philippians, and it's in chapter three. Um, it, it, it's verses 12 to 14. It says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which for, uh, for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brothers, I do not count myself to be apprehended, but one thing I do Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And uh, so the, the phrase press on has been something that has been um, very relevant to my life and my career and my experiences overseas and coming home from those experiences. Um, and I love the part where he talks about uh, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Um, I've, I had a pastor uh, once who explained that passage as being the driver of a vehicle and spending your entire life looking in the small rearview mirror versus the huge windshield in front of you. Um, and so that's that's been a mantra that um, I've recently encouraged cadets to, to dwell on, um, but also, um, it's, it's very relevant to my life and one that I, I, I find very helpful. 
So the second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Yeah, uh, I'm glad our discussion went the way it did, because um, I, I think this is good. And it's, you know, for other people on the podcast, um, not to not to make fun of them or anything. But I think the the magic moments of uh, explaining when you got engaged or when you got married surprisingly uh, not not yeah. not really no I, we've got one marriage story and that was yeah. really or two um and it was really just because those individuals didn't get to re like be present in the moment so they would okay. just want to relive it to like yeah remember what it felt like we haven't got any engagement stories though yeah so, so. um i i wanted to stay away from those after my second deployment um my wife and I had gone almost our, our first two and a half years with without living under the same roof. Uh, and so she had, you know, I, I went to um, Alaska and then she went to Alabama. We got we got married. Um, you know, uh, even when she finally came to the Savannah area where I was stationed, I had already deployed again. And so. Um, the, the day, I, I don't remember the exact date. It was probably around the 27th of January, 2009, but it was almost two and a half years into our marriage. And I came home from that second trip. I had been wounded on that specific deployment. Um, and so it was a, a pretty tense time uh, for my wife too, who you know kind of had to field the phone call on that. Um, I was okay. Um, but you know, obviously that, that doesn't really help in the moment. Um, so I, I, you know, being able to finally live in the same house that we had bought, uh, under the same roof with my wife. And that was really kind of the start of our lives together. Um, before we even had a dog and had kids. Um, and so reliving that moment, uh, would be great because, um, that's led me to where we are now. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that was a really fun time in, in our lives. I love that. That just like shows the strength of your relationship. And I'm really excited to have your wife on this podcast because yeah. I can't wait to hear what her side of all this is. Um, <laughs> the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? I, I probably would have chosen different songs in the past for sure. Uh, but there's one song that I really love now and it's called another in the fire by Hillsong United. And it, it talks about someone standing next to you. Um, so the, uh, you know, with the, with the Jewish background, you'd be familiar with, uh, uh, the story of the fiery furnace, um, Shadrach, uh, Meshach and Abednego uh, standing in the fiery furnace and, and the, uh, the fourth person, uh, you know, standing there in the fire. Um, I, I feel like there's been a lot of times in my life and my career where um, I felt the presence of God specifically overseas in some very tough times. And uh, so um having that confidence and reliance on my faith to get through some, some pretty trying moments and periods in my life and, and my career. Um, 
that's just a song that really resonates with me. And, and I, I, I play it, uh, maybe not necessarily as a hype song, but sometimes I will listen to it while I'm working out. Um, but that's, that's like, I think for me where I am in my life right now, that that's probably my theme music that I'd walk out to. Perfect. So I just went ahead and added it to the, for your listening pleasure, uh, theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can listen to it and it's included in the playlist. Um, Mike, thank you so much. I've learned so much. Um, Please know you have an open door to come back whenever you would like. Um, If you and your wife want to come on together one time or, you know, whatever you would like, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And I'm really excited for you and all the coaching and all the games for your kids just enjoy every moment of it. I loved when my dad was coaching us when we were younger. So it's special. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm working on perfecting my, my dad jokes. So that'll be uh, something I'll continue to work on as I, as I work on the coaching career. But thank you very much for having me and being able to share my story. 